0: Hey Rochelle. Hi Bethany. We put a lot of time into this podcast, don't we?
1: Yes, and time zones. It's actually 11 p.m. right now where I am, and I'm one of those early to rise, early to bed people.
0: And we are not alone. We've got guest hosts and consultants and editors. We want them to be paid. And my computer recently decided to stop recording audio. So that's a bonus. And we need a little help supporting the podcast.
1: Yes. And we also like to do new things with the podcast. Like, for instance, live shows. Uh, we've done a few in the past. Um, a long, long time ago. We haven't done one for a while. We'd love to do more of these. But live shows take a different type of equipment, which we don't have a lot of. In particular, we don't have a lot of in duplicate since we're scattered across uh, several time zones.
0: I think it might be seven time
1: zones. It's many. It's several, I feel, is the appropriate word.
0: (laughs) So in order to support the podcast and do cool new things like live shows, we're doing something new on our Patreon. We're giving away, except not giving away because we're selling it. But if you support us on Patreon, we can give you awesome totes and stickers with our awesome Science for the People logo on them. Haven't you always wanted a Science for the People sticker for your forehead? And we're also doing something really special. We've got a scientist birthday club. If you support us for $5 per month or more every year, you'll get a special birthday card. It's not on your birthday. Sorry, we don't actually know when your birthday is. Instead, it's on the birthday of a scientist we think is worth knowing about. There will be custom art about that scientist and a biography introducing you to this amazing researcher who you've never heard of. And if you support us for $50, you can even get that scientist's birthday on a very sleek-looking mug.
1: In order to celebrate this scientist's birthday, we uh, went to an artist that I know here in the UK, Zhai Lu, and got her to create some custom art. So not only is it an unknown scientist to you, uh, who you'll learn about, but you also get some pretty sweet custom art. And it's a really, really cool piece of art. I'm not gonna lie, it's really gorgeous.
0: It's a great opportunity to support the podcast that you love,
1: or at least you're listening to it right now, which means you have to like it at least a little. And it's almost time. Sign up by May 15th to get this year's card. If you're late, you may still get lucky. We'll keep sending them as long as supplies last. But if you definitely want one, you need to get on it right away. Uh, We're only doing a single order of these. So uh, once they're gone, they're gone.
0: Now you're probably tired of this. So let's get to the science, shall we?
1: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
2: This week on Science for the People, we're looking at a different way of producing color than you might be used to. Structural color relies on nanoscale structures to reflect particular wavelengths of light. To start things off, we'll be discussing some of the science behind naturally occurring colors and the engineering to produce manufactured ones with PhD student Victoria Huang. After that, Maria McNamara joins us to discuss how color information is preserved in the fossil record and where the research is going. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marian Kilgore. Joining me is Victoria Hoang, a PhD student in applied physics at Harvard University. Her research focuses on understanding the physics behind angle-independent structural colors and designing rules to create and expand the range of colors and saturation so far achieved. Applications for her research include long-lasting paints and coatings and colored electronic ink for displays. Prior to Harvard, she worked at Xerox Park and intellectual ventures laboratories in the areas of colloidal materials and water sanitation. She received her bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Princeton University. So thanks for speaking to us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So we should probably start off with the basics. When I say I'm going to color something, I usually think of a paint or a dye, but you work with structural colors. So, to start us off, could you explain what makes a structural color different from pigment-based colors?
3: Right. So, um, structural color is a type of color that comes from the internal structure of a material. And to give you a few examples, um, you can see it in nature a lot. So, in many species of butterflies, like the shiny blue morpho butterfly, or beetles, or peacock feathers, and actually, interestingly, all blue birds... Uh, The color comes from how light interacts with the internal features and the structure of the material. And it's important to emphasize that the internal components of the material aren't actually colored themselves. But instead, the color comes from how light interferes with the arrangement of the components as a whole. And so pigment-based colors, you know, they're very common. You you see um, most of the colors that you see are pigment-based, like in fabrics, clothing, paints. And also many colors in nature, like the green in trees. But these colors come from chemistry. So that means that there's some chemical pigment or a dye that absorbs all the colors that you don't see. So to give you an example, if you shine white light that is composed of red, green, and blue into a red apple, then that means that the apple skin has a molecule that absorbs all of the blue and green colors. And so the remaining red is what you see. But in structural color, there's no molecule that absorbs, but instead, the internal structure of the material reflects the colors that you see and lets all the other colors pass through the material. So in the case of a blue bird that has structural blue color, the composition of the feather on the nanoscale, and nanoscale means essentially around like the size of one thousandth of a human hair. Uh, this structure reflects only the blue colors while letting the green and red pass through.
2: Okay. So, uh, so you mentioned blue for, for birds and butterflies. Are there colors that are almost all structural in nature and some that are almost always pigment based? Yeah. And
3: actually, um, so as I said before, all blue birds are a structural color and uh to the extent of our knowledge, we don't know of any uh, birds that have red structural color that is angle independent. So that means that it's, it's non-iridescent or that the color doesn't change depending on the angle from which you look at it from. Um, so the red birds usually have their pigment or their color from pigment, whereas blue birds have their color from structure.
2: Are you mentioned iridescent colors? So, are any bird, so are all bird feathers that uh, are sort of shimmery or they change color depending on the angle, are those always a structural color?
3: Yeah, actually, yes, um, because that type of iridescent effect, you don't get it from pigment because, again, um, the pigment based color is based on absorption. So the remaining color that you do end up seeing doesn't really depend on the angle. It's it's an intrinsic property of the chemical components. Whereas the structure does change, could change, uh, depending on the color or, or the angle from which you look at it from. So then it makes sense that the color could also change. So in the case of peacock feathers, for instance, that you see that shimmery effect, that angle dependent iridescence, um, that is definitely structural color.
2: So what about uh, feathers that are more, since we're talking about birds, feathers that are more matte, like I'm thinking of blue jays that we have in Edmonton and they're, they're not an iridescent sort of color. Um, are those more difficult to make with a structural color? Yeah, so actually
3: um, angle independent structural colors like the, the blue jay or the blue katingas that, are, that look essentially the same as pigment-based colors, they, um, they are easier to make than the iridescent type. Uh, and I can actually tell you briefly how we do it. and It's it's super easy, simple, and cheap, and fast. Um, so we, we essentially start with something that's called a colloidal suspension, which is basically a liquid that has nanoparticles suspended in it. Uh, so milk is a typical example of a colloidal suspension. And we essentially remove all of the water in the suspension, and we end up with only the dried nanoparticles that are tightly packed so we can make pellets or films of these packed nanoparticles or use them as additives in a formulation. And in this way, we can create something that looks pretty much the same as paint, but without some of the disadvantages of current pigment-based colors.
2: So uh, with the nanoparticles in the colors that you work on in your lab, what are those particles actually made out of?
3: Yeah, so you can make them out of many different materials, actually. Um, so, for example, we, in our research, we use a lot of plastics. So, uh, polystyrene is a type of material that we use a lot. But you can make them out of many different things. And the important property is that they interfere with light in a similar way as the birds or, or uh, beetles, butterflies, um, as those proper, as those structures do. And so the material itself is not really that important. It's more about the structure. And so other materials that that are um, used many times are um, silica, for instance, which is what sand is made out of. And that's something that has also the extra advantage that is naturally sourced. So it's found naturally in many food products like in vegetables, brown rice, oats. Um, So these open up the field of applications in, in consumer products that you can wear on your skin or even in food products. Um, and I know that, for instance, a group at Tufts University is also making structural colors with silk, which, you know, of course, that would be safe to wear on your skin. So yeah, I guess like the, the variety of materials that you can use for structural color is is very wide because the material itself is not as important as the structure because the structure is what creates the color.
2: Maybe let's just go back to uh, the structural colors that form in nature. Are there are there's naturally occurring structural colors that aren't on animals or plants, um, like any sort of uh, rocks or something like that? Yeah.
3: So if you've ever seen an inverse opal, um, that's a type of very nice, also angle dependent or iridescent structural color. And you can see the, all the colors of the rainbow there. And they're, they're very nice and they're used in jewelry quite extensively. Um, also pearls, you know, when you look at a pearl and there's that very nice, um, shiny pearlescent effect, that also comes from the internal structure of the material, and that's—it's the reflection of the light that actually gives rise to this color. So, yeah, it, it happens more than in in plants or in animals or insects. It also happens in in stones and uh, pearls and in many in many different places in nature.
2: So, with the structural colors in nature, could you just run it past me again? So, how do you get take? sunlight and have it reflected by a nanoscale structure in a way that makes it look so blue.
3: Right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so imagine that you have a bird feather or a butterfly wing and you take a very close up picture of the structure. So you zoom in enough to be able to see the nanoscale features. Mm-hmm. Then we will always see that all of these structurally colored animals have an internal structure that reflects light. And the specific type of structure can vary a lot with each species, but it's often a repeating structure. Like, for example, in butterflies, it can be alternating stack layers of chitin and air. Or in plants, it can be structures of cellulose fibers. Or in some birds, it can be packings of spherical particles um, of, of a material called keratin. And the key property is that the size of these features of these particles or or the thicknesses of the alternating layers is always around the size of the wavelength of light. So when light interacts with a material that is roughly the same size as its wavelength, then something called constructive interference happens, where one color of the light for example, blue constructively interferes with itself and is the only color that is reflected, whereas all other colors just pass through the material and don't come back to our eyes.
2: Oh, okay. So the the rest of the colors are just carrying on unimpeded, and the color exactly. that you're seeing is the one that got caught up in the structure and reflected back.
3: Yeah, exactly. Okay.
2: So these structures are pretty small. Are they, how robust are they? Because, you know, something, something like a bird feather is going to encounter the elements and it's getting groomed and it's, you know, getting flown with. So there's a lot of abuse that they have to take.
3: That's right. Um, But because these nanostructures are very, very small, so nanoscale, so, so that's about one thousandth of a human hair. That's very, very small. So, um i think that that these structures are pretty fairly robust um the you know birds that are playing with their feathers and and grooming um they don't they wouldn't necessarily in, interact or disrupt this structure on the nanoscale but it would be more of a big effect that it would have mm-hmm. on the feather so so yeah uh, the type of structure that interacts with like is, is so small that it's is actually quite robust on that scale. I, that's That will be my guess. <laughs>
2: Fair enough. Um, so your lab works on manufacturing colors. Um, mm-hmm. Are there manufactured structural colors already out there that people might be familiar with?
3: Yeah, so the research related to applications of structural color is really booming these days because... Of course, color is such a fundamental part of life in everything we see and consume. So being able to create bright colors that can last longer or be less toxic than chemical dyes is really desirable in many industries. And one example is the paints or the coatings industries. Um, so I, I recently learned that Lexus launched a blue car where the blue is structural. And in that case, the advantage of using structural blue coatings in cars as opposed to paint is that the color doesn't fade over time like pigment based colors do. Um, and another example is the field of cosmetics. Uh, structural colors, you know, often can have this iridescent effect that we were talking about. So uh that could be very interesting in, for example, nail polish or eyeshadow that changes color depending on the direction from which you look at it. Um, that's a very novel and attractive application. And I know that for example L'Oreal is making I was doing some research on this field. But also, um, structural color is not just about how pretty it looks, but uh, especially in consumer products that people wear on their skin or even in food products, lately there's been a a growing concern in the public related to the types of chemicals that are being used and their toxicity. Mm -hmm. And because structural color doesn't rely on chemical dyes and you can make them out of materials that are non-toxic and naturally sourced, um, even in the field of food dyes, there's a huge market there where structural color could have a great impact.
2: So going back to what you had mentioned about using uh, colloids in your lab to, to manufacture the colors, why is that technique in particular really useful?
3: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so the reason why we use colloids or colloidal suspensions is because um, colloidal suspensions are actually quite easy to make and, and um, to purchase. But at the same time, what we need are nanoscaled features in the structure. So using colloidal suspensions that are made out of nanoparticles, if we assemble these nanoparticles together, then uh, we get the, the right type of size um, that is small enough to interact with light in this way to make structural color. So, if we actually used particles that were much bigger, so if we use like spheres that were meters long, then we wouldn't be able to achieve the same effect of structural color. So it is important that that the particles that we use are are small in the nanoscale um, for the physics to to be able to work.
2: Um, so when you remove the water, so you'd mentioned that previously that the structures have to be small and they're repeating, how do you get everything to arrange how do you get these nanoparticles to arrange themselves in these sort of precise structures um, rather than just randomly into a solid
3: right so um when we do that when we uh, start out with the colloidal suspension and remove all the water quite rapidly the types of packings that we get are actually quite disordered. So they're not crystalline or ordered structures, but they're, there's some degree of disorder in the structure. And that's what makes, that, that's what allows us to make angle independent or non-iridescent colors. If the structures are crystalline or highly ordered, then we would get the type of iridescent colors that we would see in the peacock feather, for example. And so those structures are actually a little harder to make, um, the drying process is, is longer, usually, and it's a little bit more convoluted. But in the end, we can still get crystalline structures that, are, that, that have a very high order. Um, and then in that way, we can make the iridescent type of structural color.
2: Oh, OK. So for the non-iridescent angle-independent colors, you're not, actually, you're not aiming for uh, a solid with a highly ordered structure. Randomness is what you're looking for? Right yeah it's the randomness that actually
3: gives it this angle independence because the structure essentially um looks disordered or somewhat random so it kind of looks the same no matter from the ang- no matter uh, the angle from which you look at it from but if you have a very highly ordered structure then you can see how uh, the structure will look different if it's if you're looking at it from the top whereas if you're looking at it from an angle um, and so that also means that light will interfere in, in a different way uh, with a crystalline structure depending on the angle, whereas in a non-iridescent structural color, light interferes in the same way from on all angles if it's a
0: disorder structure.
2: So in your lab, you've made various different colors using this technique. How do you control what color the nanoparticles end up reflecting? So yeah, there are many different
3: experimental parameters that we can tweak and one of them and the most important one is the structure of the material. But there are other parameters such as the size of the particles or the layers that we're making or the type of material that we use um, that we can tweak and tune to achieve different types of color that actually span the whole spectrum from blue to red. So. To give you an idea, um, if we want to make a structural color that is blue, then we would usually use smaller nanoparticles, so around a couple hundred, so around 200 nanometers, Uh, in diameter. Whereas if we wanted to make red structural color, then we would use a slightly larger around 300 nanometers uh, in size for the particles. So by adjusting the different experimental parameters, we can actually achieve uh, different colors.
2: Okay, are some of the colors easier than others?
3: Yeah, um, blue is actually much easier than red. And that has been a very uh, old question that our lab's previous grad student in our lab was able to answer and the question is that in nature it's very common to see blue birds that have structural color but all the red birds have uh, their color come from pigment and we couldn't really find an example in nature in in birds or beetles or butterflies or or stones in anything where there was red structural color that was angle independent and it's it's possible to see red structural color that is angle-dependent, but uh, we couldn't find angle-independent structural color. And so uh, this previous grad student, she realized that the the reason for that is because whenever we try to make a red color in the lab, we always get that the blue light also gets reflected in addition to the red. So the final color and ends up looking purple. And part of the reason why blue also gets reflected is due to something called multiple scattering, which means that essentially all of the light gets reflected back. So not just the red, but also the blue and some of the green. And that's currently what our research is about. Uh, We're currently trying to quantitatively and physically understand the effect of this multiple scattering in structural color and learn ways to control it. Um, And hopefully this research will contribute to further understand the physics behind structural color and hopefully develop design rules to be able to make any color that we want.
2: So is that, to a certain extent, an effect of the different size of the wavelengths? Like the fact that the red has a longer wavelength means that the blue is also interacting with the particles?
3: Yeah, that's actually pretty pretty much it. So uh, because the red wavelengths are longer, uh, it turns out that when we make structural color, there is this main color peak. So when you make a blue structural color, there's a, a, that means that there's a blue peak in the reflectance, um, at the blue wavelengths. Uh, but it turns out that there's not only the main color peak that determines the color that you see, but there's also this secondary peak, um, that is actually happening more at the smaller wavelengths. So that would be in the UV range. And in the case of blue structural colors, we don't see the contribution of the secondary peak because it's in the in the UV region, and we can't see in the UV. Okay. But in the case of red structural color, uh, the secondary peak is actually located in the blue. So um, what we end up seeing is this mixture between blue and red, and so it's purple instead of red.
2: Okay. I Yeah, one of my questions was going to be on the topic of UV and infrared. So could you make these... Compounds to reflect um, those wavelengths as well?
3: Yeah, so um, yeah, I guess like the the physics behind structural color is not limited to just the colors, right. We can also apply these principles to UV or infrared regions. So if we wanted to make a coating that is more reflected in the in the UV so that it doesn't heat up as much or as fast as, as pigment based materials would then in that case using structural color could be a potential use uh, or a potential way to get
0: that
2: huh, that's interesting cuz you know you would think if you can incorporate that into something like uh, a fabric or something like that then you have a good way of making uv opaque materials which is yeah yeah that's um
3: yeah there's there's many different applications that would certainly benefit from this yeah
2: um so when, you're, when you get the color at the end of the process of evaporating the water, what sort of physical form is it in? Is it sort of a gel or is it a dry solid? Uh, so it's, a, it's usually a dry solid. Um, so we
3: usually make uh, pellets or films, but we can also add them in a formulation. Um, so make something that looks like a pigment essentially, uh, but is, is not a pigment, but it's instead its structural color. Um, but to the eye, it could look essentially the same as paint. So, yeah, it, there's a, a range of, of, of possible different, uh, formats in which structural color could be used.
2: Um, so you, you could put these together in something that, uh, you know, a consumer would buy in a can and apply with a brush. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And actually,
3: I know that there are several artists already that are, using structural color for their art. And so they're using it essentially like a, as a pigment, uh, but they're able to achieve very fascinating color effects that they wouldn't be able to achieve with with uh, pigment-based colors. Because, you know, if you have an iridescent type of um, painting or something like that, then then that's, that's a very different type of optical effect than you would get with normal paints.
2: So some existing paints, um, like... Uh... Glitter paints or shiny nail polishes, are those already structural colors or are those some other sort of reflective effect going on? So, um, most
3: of those are not um, structural colors. So, what, they, what those uh, pigments use, they, they usually have, um, so they have as a base material, they have a pigment, so a chemical that absorbs some wavelengths and doesn't absorb some others. Um so the base material is a pigment but they usually add additives like for example uh, metal particles or things like that that reflect light in a very uh, bright way and so that adds this shimmering effect or or it it's not quite iridescent but more of this metallic effect that you see a lot in, in nail polish or in eyeshadow um so that's not quite structural color but um but yeah so they're still using pigments
2: oh, Okay Um, are, and what about some other colors? Like, are white or black easier or harder to make than something like a blue pigment? Or not pigment, structural color.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, um, I think that, so white essentially means that you have all of the colors, and black means that you have no colors because all the color is absorbed. Um So just because if you want to make black, then you would need something that is absorbing. So you would need something that is pigment based. But there are papers um, out there, labs that are working on this, on how to combine absorption and structure to enhance each other. So there's actually um, uh, birds of paradise, those that are very black and have this very deep absorbing black that that is, um, you know, you can, when you see, look at the bird from the front, you can't really distinguish any features because it's such an absorbing deep black. And it's been shown that the reason for that, super black absorption is due to the fact that there's structure inside and so there's this inter- interplay between structure and absorption the presence of the structure enhances the absorption oh. so yeah you you can you can um imagine how um you can use structure to to enhance absorption and create deeper blacks at the same time you can also use structure to make brighter whites and that is something also that that many uh, industries. I mean, especially the paints industry is very interested in.
2: Okay, that's interesting. I didn't realize that that's what Birds of Paradise were doing to get those uh, those really black blacks. That there was a, a pigment and structure involved.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: When you're uh, doing these experiments to make these different colors, <laughs> what do your unsuccessful experiments look like? Um, <laughs> that's,
3: uh, that's a great question. <laughs> so, um, many times, uh, what we struggle with is when we're making samples of structural color, it's, it's somewhat hard to make them, uh, look nice and homogeneous. So if we're making films and to give you a sense of how big they are, they're probably about an inch squared in size because that's, that's about the size that we need for our experiments and to make measurements. And, um, it's, we get all sorts of cracking and, you know, inhomogeneities on the surface and these things. Um, these are more experimental challenges that come more from the engineering side of things. Um, but, but yeah, so, so we have a lot of challenges re- related to that. But there's also scientific questions. Like, for example, um, what I mentioned before about this, this multiple scattering that, that affects the structural color and and that um also is related to why it's so hard to make angle independent structural red uh, these are scientific questions that are uh, still being answered and and these are questions that are actually quite hard to grasp sometimes because it's all about how light interacts and interferes with some material and so yeah it's um it's a challenge <laughs> definitely but it's definitely a a very interesting and fun one.
2: What about uh what about colors that um <laughs> what about uh paints or structures that could change color? Cuz I have seen over the years a few paints that change color based on temperature, but they have a pretty narrow range of application. Mm. Is, is temperature dependence something that could be engineered into a structural color?
3: Yes. And actually, um, there are several groups that are working on this type of uh, sensing applications. So you can imagine making a film of structural color that changes based on their temperature or, or the humidity in the environment. So the structure itself would either, for example, if it's very humid, then the sample would absorb a lot of water and that would make it swell. So that means that it's essentially changing the structure of the material and that leads to a color shift. So yeah, um, these type of applications are actually being explored quite a lot and they're very promising.
2: So where do you think this technology will get used first or at least the most uptake in the next decade or so?
3: Yeah, I think that um, the industry of coatings, car coatings, like the example of Lexus. Um, that means that it's already being used in, in the industry a lot, uh, especially for coatings in cars. And because cosmetics companies are also very interested in it, I think that there's going to be a lot of uh, nail polish <laughs> products or eyeshadows that are going to come out that have you know interesting color effects. Um, but also another cool, very interesting application is. The development of electronic ink for displays, like in your Kindle. So imagine having a Kindle with all the advantages that Kindles offer for reading purposes relative to standard backlit tablets. But now the Kindle can display colors too. So that's also a very interesting application that I think uh, is very promising, and there's there are companies that are working heavily on this too.
2: You uh, you make me so happy saying that because I have an e-ink. Uh, book readers that has served me well for many years, and, and I'm glad that they're uh, <laughs> they're they're going to get some advantages of color displays sometime. In yeah. The
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, I I think that's going to happen soon.
2: Um, what research question are you the most interested to see the answer to in the in the hopefully in the near future? Yeah. So a lot of the challenges and questions that are out there are related
3: to the engineering point of view of how can we implement this into a specific application. But, um, you know, there's still many questions from a scientific perspective that haven't been answered yet. And the question that that our lab is currently working on, which is the the question of multiple scattering, what happens when light uh, doesn't just, or the structure doesn't just reflect a certain color, but it reflects all of them, and you don't want that. How do we control that? So what parameters determine that? Um, and how can we quantify it in a way such that we can design samples in the future uh, to be able to, you know, get rid of the multiple scattering or maybe use it to our advantage to, to make brighter colors? So that's a, that's a topic that I'm very interested in. And then also another topic is, is uh, an, another example that I mentioned before with the birds of paradise, I think, uh, there's a lot of interesting optical effects happening when you combine absorption and scattering. So multiple scattering or absorption and structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a very non-trivial question, I think. Uh, there's a lot of physics to be discovered there. So, um, I would like to, to work on that. And yeah, currently our research is, is, um, focusing on understanding that too.
2: Well, great. Thanks for your time, and thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank
3: you so much for having me.
2: You can learn more about Victoria Hoang and find links to photos of some of the colors the lab has produced, as well as more information about structural colors at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Just as a post-interview note for our listeners, Victoria mentioned that there is a car manufacturer out there who has been using a structural color-based paint. Lexis has put together a video of how they go about manufacturing and applying their special structural blue paint, and we have a link to it up on the website. We'll be back in a moment with more Science for the People.
1: Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking find out where science for the people airs near you or to listen to past episodes check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca you'll also find links to support us at patreon to connect with us on facebook and twitter and to subscribe to the podcast in itunes and now back to the show welcome
2: back to science for the people i'm your host marian kilgore Joining me is Dr. Maria McNamara from University College Cork in Ireland. She's a paleobiologist working on the preservation of soft tissues in fossil animals. Much of her current research focuses on the preservation of color in fossil insects and vertebrates, but also in fossil preservation more broadly, including the skeletal taphonomy of fossils and environmental and biological controls and preservation. So thanks for speaking to us today.
4: Great. no, great to be here.
2: I actually wanted to start with a pretty brief basic question about your work. What
4: is taphonomy? Okay, so taphonomy is the study of all of the processes that happen from the moment of, of death of an organism uh, to the time which they're discovered by paleontologist. So taphonomy covers everything from, you know, how animals die, the the killing mechanism right through to how they're transported to the site of deposition um, and, uh, you know, everything that happens after deposition when when in a sedimentary environment. So it covers um, burial into the Earth's crust, it includes heating up and it includes the processes of uplift back to the Earth's surface. So um, so
2: how can those events, obviously, if I understand that if an organism starts to rot a lot before it fossilizes, that would affect what sort of soft tissues preserve. But for something like bone, uh, once it started to fossilize, how can those affect the information that we find in the fossil afterwards?
4: Okay, well, in, in the case of bone, you know, a lot of processes can happen to bones. So for instance, um, if an animal decays um, an animal may, might die and, um, its body, its soft tissues might decay, uh, let's say at the side of a river. several the, and the, the body may be scavenged by scavengers and those bones could get scattered and they could get fractured and fragmented um, uh, by scavengers then if there's a flood event say at the um, if this if, if a nearby river floods those bones could get entrained into the river they'll get broken around they could get abraded uh, fractured even more and they could get um deposited um across a wide Environment. Once those bones um, are buried, they can um, uh, be affected by um, fluids moving through those buried sediments. So our Earth's crust is full of hot fluids um, and these have lots of salts dissolved in them. So if they encounter biological material like a bone, they can actually dissolve the minerals of the bone. They can completely destroy the bone structure. Um, uh, leaving you with a, just a mold of the bone, an external impression. Or sometimes those minerals can, um, those salts in those hot fluids can actually um, re-precipitate, re-crystallize, um, and they can actually preserve some of the biological structures, but in a completely different mineral. So, you know, even hard materials like bones and teeth, they can be affected by these fossilization processes.
2: And the reason I wanted to talk to you is that you've worked on the preservation of color in the fossil record. And um, when I was talking to my previous guest about feathers and her work um, replicating or creating structural colors in the lab, uh, I started thinking about feathers on dinosaurs and whether it was possible at all that we could learn color information from the structure of feathers. So do those sorts of nanostructures survive? fossilization
4: okay so in terms of structural colors in feathers um they're generated in in two ways um you can get structural colors iridescent structural colors which are generated by um layers of melanin granules um so in modern birds if these little microscopic granules of the pigment melanin if they line up in a very ordered way they can effectively act as a mirror and, uh, reflecting light and multiple layers of these melanin granules, um, will result in more reflection and brighter colors. So that's one way that modern birds can generate structural colors. Um, another way, and, and these do preserve in fossils. You can, you know, we have, um, reports of fossil feathers, um, which seem to preserve uh, these very ordered arrangements of melanin granules or melanosomes, as they're called. The second way in which feathers can generate structural colours is using... um Uh, what we call quasi-ordered nanostructures um, formed by the, uh, not by the melanosomes, but by the keratin matrix of the feather. And various modern birds do this. A blue jay, for instance, the blue colour is generated by these, uh, a squiggly mass of keratin, which is actually quasi-ordered. It's ordered um, at very short uh, nanometer scales and um, these can scatter light in a in a in a regular fashion uh, typically producing blue colors um, so that's the second way that birds can produce colors but unfortunately the keratin matrix uh, doesn't preserve so well. And actually, preservation of keratin is very controversial in fossils. Um, there's still no general consensus as to whether keratin can preserve. And, um, uh, so the, these quasi ordered networks have not been reported yet in fossils. It's something which my group is working on at the moment, but we have no answers yet.
2: So then, um, the, the process of preserving a feather as a fossil, uh, the, cr- I guess the the minerals that do that don't obscure the melanin-based structures or at least not as badly as they would with the
4: keratin right okay well um the 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 vast majority of fossil feathers um are not preserved in minerals at all they're still preserved as organic remains so they're still preserved as carbon-based molecules now the carbon-based molecules in which they're preserved are not necessarily identical to the original composition. We're not saying that just just because your fossil is primarily composed of carbon doesn't mean that all the original biomolecules are preserved, such as keratin. We know they're not. We know from various experiments that different groups have done over the last 20 years that um, when fossil insects and leaves and feathers, when they're preserved in rocks or as organic remains, the uh, organic molecules, the lipids, the fats, they actually um, combine, they join up during fossilization to form big polymers. And um, uh, these uh, polymers obviously have a very different composition to the original tissue. Um, So most feathers are preserved as these carbon-based remains. And we're only now, um, you know, trying to pick apart the, uh, the exact composition of the organic remains of fossil feathers.
2: Oh, I didn't. I guess I hadn't put two and two together that they were actually still carbon-based molecules. I'm just so used to the sort of pop sci idea of a fossil that their you know minerals went in and replaced the structures that were originally there.
4: So that you know that applies to very decay prone soft tissues, things like muscle um or uh skin, for instance, these are typically preserved in fossils as mineralized remains, and um the reasons for this aren 't fully understood, but you know we think it's probably because these tissues are so decay prone they decay very rapidly you know within hours, days, or a couple of weeks um, they are they're very they they're, they're, they're Tissue surfaces are very reactive and, um, uh, when they start to decay, they become very negatively charged and these will bind any um, mineral ions that are present in the medium. Um, And so, you know, for instance, you know, calcium ions can bind to the surface and then that can trigger precipitation of calcium minerals, such as calcium phosphate. And so most skin and muscle in the fossil record is preserved actually in calcium phosphate. Um, But tissues that don't decay very quickly, they don't generate the same very steep geochemical gradients. Um, You don't get the same... Um, fluxes movement of mineral ions um, around very um, d- uh, decay resistant tissues so decay resistant tissues like leaves and insect cuticle and feathers these are usually preserved just as um, degraded and uh, polymerized remains of the original um, molecules when you find a fossil with say
2: say a beetle with the exoskeleton or a feather, um, does the – actually, let's just go back to the beetles, because there are some fossil beetles where the fossil itself has a visible iridescent sort of color. Mm-hmm. So does that reflect what it would have been in life, or has that been modified by the
4: process of polymerization and fossilization? So, very good question. So, um, uh, we, myself and some colleagues, we were, we did, a, um, some work on these, uh, metallic, uh, fossil beetles a number of years ago, about five years ago. And we looked at oh, I, I forget now exactly, but we looked at six, seven hundred specimens from different fossil localities all over the world. And, um, we were allowed to take samples from some of these fossil beetles very small samples you know you're uh, half a millimeter in size and we analyzed them with um, uh, electron microscopes and we found that they preserve um layered structures in the very outerm- outermost part of the cuticle called the epicuticle and these very finely layered structures they're they're tiny they're you know you get 10 of these layers in, um, in, uh, uh, in a, in a micron. Um, and a micron is a hundred times thinner than a human hair. So you're talking about really tiny structures. Um, but incidentally, these little layers that we found, they are identical to what we see in modern insects with metallic colors. And we were able to do some computer modeling, which showed that these layers in the fossils they were capable of producing visible light so they were they they were scattering visible wavelengths so they are proper photonic structures they are you know physical structures that are interacting with light to produce color um so, But the problem was, our models showed that the colours that they should be producing are not the colours that they're actually producing. Um, so, you know, when we try to work out what colours a structure should produce, it's dependent on both the spacing of the layers and also on the chemistry of the material, on its refractive index, which is a measure of how much it bends light. Um, so, for instance, we're all familiar with the fact that air and water bend light differently. Because, you know, if you have a straw in a glass of water that's half full, the straw appears to have a kink where the air and water meet. Mm-hmm. That's because mm-hmm. air and water bend light differently. So that's how these structures are actually um, uh, scattering light because they're the different layers have different chemistries and bend light in different ways. But um, uh, our models basically told us that something has changed about these fossil structures. Um, because they're not producing the colours now that they would have had when they were alive millions of years ago. So we did some experiments whereby we effectively, you know, simulated the fossilisation process in the lab. We took some modern beetles, with which have these layers in their cuticles and which produce these lovely metallic colours. And we took these modern beetles and we, um, uh, heat- we decayed them. And we heated them up to high temperatures and pressures, like what you'd get during burial in the Earth's crust. And during our experiments, our beetles changed colour. And we analysed the cuticles to try and understand why. And we found that the layers were getting thinner. Um, which was resulting in a blue shift. The colours were being blue shifted to shorter wavelengths. Um, but also the chemistry of the cuticles was changing. Um, so this was changing the refractive index. So it was changing how the cuticles are actually bending light. So, um, you know when we apply these results to our fossils you know our fossils have all experienced some degree of maturation they've all experienced you know chemical change and they've just because of the fact you know they're fossils and they've been buried in sediments they've probably been um, subjected to some compression as well so in the fossils um you know the the reasons why we don't see the original colors are because of a combination Of the physical structure changing, those layers are changing in thickness, but also because their chemistry is different, so they're bending light differently. So when we see these lovely metallic colours in fossil insects, we can say for sure these these species were generating colours to use for signalling, possibly as you know mating displays. But we can't reconstruct the exact colour unless you have a very good idea of how much those fossils have been buried during the fossilization process. So the information about the area where they came
2: from and what was found around them, you would need that information as well before you could try
4: and reconstruct their actual color in life? Exactly. You'd need to have some handle on it. And even then, I'm not sure how precise we can actually be. um, Because, you know, we conduct our experiments over a matter of hours rather than millions of years um and uh you know we we're, we're because when we do the experiments the chemicals we see in the cuticles are look pretty similar to what we see in the fossils um but there's always a chance that they're not a perfect match there's always a, cha- a chance that something funny happened in a particular fossil biota that we can't constrain or that we don't fully understand so i would say with the insects we can probably get a good handle um, for the amount of change, relative change, between different fossil locations. But I don't know if we could really get the specific colours. Not not yet, anyway.
2: So, with um, there have been papers in the last 10 or so years looking at uh, melanin as a pigment in various fossils and trying to reconstruct the patterns that they would have shown uh, in life. How... I guess, how do you know that the pigment that's getting evaluated was actually part of the animal or whether it was uh, just sort of an artifact of fossilization? I guess, how do you know what you don't, or how do you figure out what you
4: don't know about the fossil? Right, yeah, that's, okay, that's that's a good question. So, I mean, um, uh, when we think about uh, pigments, the most common pigment that has been reported in fossils well, the the only pigment that's been reported in vertebrate fossils is melanin, um, traces of these little, these little melanin granules or melanosomes. And um, uh, the thing about melanin it has is that it has a rather unique chemistry. And so there are methods that we can use to look for diagnostic fragments of the melanin molecule in fossils. And this you know, this is a so there's a technique that my group is using, and uh, it 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 uh, was developed by a group in Japan to actually characterize melanin in modern modern animals, modern animal tissues. And so this this technique, it's a chemical assay that um, that basically um, breaks melanin down into unique fragments that cannot as far as we understand, can't be produced by any other process. So if we apply this technique to look at fossils, well then, you know, to the best of our knowledge, if we find these molecular markers, these little fragments of melanin, um, well then it, it means that there was melanin present. Um, uh, because as far as we know, these molecular fragments can't be produced by any other method. So in terms of chemistry, there's th- that's a pretty good method. That's a direct method for measuring melanin. There are also other other chemical techniques which you can use to look for um, uh, proteins, for instance, which would suggest the presence of melanin but wouldn't be as, as definitive. Um, and finally, you can test for presence of melanin using... Uh, morphological methods. So, by looking for more physical remains of those little melanin granules. But the problem is those look a bit like bacteria in terms of their size and shape. So, finding those granules on its own isn't enough to prove that melanin was present. Um, and that's all very well and good. And, you know, we can study melanin because it seems to be preserved in a lot of fossils. But um maybe what we're not really considering um, is whether other pigments were present. Um, you know, whether, whether other pigments like carotenoids or terrans. And we know in modern birds, for instance, many birds have melanin in their feathers, but their colors aren't black or brown. You know, the melanin often is, is an accessory pigment that there's some other pigment that's dominant. So, um, you know, we've got to start looking at, uh, you know, remains of other pigments in feathers. Um, and again, this is something which my group is is looking at at the moment. So things
2: like uh, flamingos that get some of their pigment from their diet wouldn't necessarily okay. preserve.
4: Oh, well, well, see, the thing is nobody's actually looking. There's a, there's, there's, um, a researcher at the American Museum of um, Natural History, Paul Nassenbeam, he did um he, he published a paper a year or two ago looking for evidence of carotenoids, but he didn't find any. Um, but you know, I, I think I definitely think it's worth putting more time and resources into um, trying to come up with, you know, creative ways of, well, how can we test whether these other pigments might be present? So I, I think we just need to start looking for them. Um, I'd be very surprised if we couldn't find evidence of any other pigment in fossil feathers. Some fossil feathers are extremely well-preserved, especially specimens in amber, for instance.
2: When we can... When the research progresses enough that we can reconstruct confidently the colours of some of these fossilised animals, what sorts of things might we be able to tell about the environment they lived in or uh, their behaviour? Yeah, so,
4: I mean, you know, the... Colour is so interesting because animals use it for communication. You know, it's one of the primary functions of colour in animals, and um, uh, you know we can we can start to look at. Well, you know you can look at the individual species, and you can you can maybe work out things like whether the environment was a shady environment or an open environment. Um, but to be honest, I don't think that we're really able to characterize that accurately. Um, you know, if, if we, if you see striking, striking patterning, um, you can make, you can make some guesses, educated guesses as to whether the pattern was functioning in camouflage or in mating displays based on the nature of the pattern and the color type and where it's occurring on the body. Um, But I actually think, you know, uh, I think personally, I've had enough of just painting pretty pictures of fossils. And I actually think that there are some much more important and much more fundamental questions that we should be asking about colour. I think, for instance, in terms of visual coloration, we should be asking ourselves, you know, what are the driving forces in evolutionary terms? What are the evolutionary drivers that are controlling colour change in animals? Um, You know, in terms of signalling, you know, is it, is, is colour primarily driven by natural selection? So the need to hide yourself from predators, for instance, um, or to frighten away predators? Or is it driven by sexual selection? Is it driven more by, you know, the, the need to prove yourself fit to a mate? Because we know these two forces often act in opposition. So I think in broader evolutionary terms through deep time, I think we should be looking at, you know, what evolutionary forces are. Are coming into play? And does it vary across different species? Does it vary across different types of animals? And does it vary through time? Because that would be really neat to reconstruct. Um, I also think we should be looking kind of more broadly at the broader functions of colour, because there's some suggestions out there that, uh, you know, coloration in animals its primary, its original function was not for visual signaling, but that it instead had some other physiological functions. Pigments have physiological functions. And, uh, and, and that, you know, over time, these pigments were co opted. They were used for another purpose. Um, and I think it would be very useful to try and test that hypothesis using fossils um to try and understand you know is it true and is it accurate and if it is well then when and where did the functions of color start to change and what environmental processes were happening that caused a fundamental shift in the in the function of color in our bodies so i think there are some really big deep questions that we could um that we could try to answer using the fossil record
2: yeah, that would be really interesting if we could start to tease apart that sort, of, that sort of question. Well, I know you have to run, so thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. You can learn more about Dr. McNamara and find links to her papers and work on fossilized color at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. There you can also find past episodes, our social media links, and learn how to support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Science for the People.
1: Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skepchik.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.